Well, uh, doctor, after looking at it, what do you think? Well, I have to tell you, I've examined a lot of these in my time. Yes, sir. But I've never seen one quite like this before. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw a silver one once. Sure, sure. And a couple that were copper. Right, right. But this, uh, this is a new one on me. I imagine so. I've heard of pinkies, I've uh-huh. heard of green thumbs, yeah, but I've right. never laid eyes on anything like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gold finger. It would be funnier if it was a middle finger. Yeah, I wish. Will not be presented at this time. How much do I owe you for this visit, Doctor? I think your top knuckle should be adequate. In order to bring you the following special podcast. It's almost live. Still alive. It's alive! A limited podcast series about Northwest Television's legendary TV sketch comedy show. An amazing phenomenon. Featuring intimate conversations with the writers, performers, creators. Rustlers, cutthroats, murderers, bounty hunters, desperados, bushwhackers, hornswagglers, horse thieves, bull dykes, train robbers, bank robbers, ass kickers, shit kickers, and messages! Your host was one of them. I think I would remember a thing like that. Pat Cashman. What's the matter with you? Almost live. This <laughs> is just a real nice surprise. Still alive. Just a real nice surprise. If Almost Live could be compared to a baseball team, Steve Wilson might have been the groundskeeper, at least on game day. He was the guy in charge of grooming the diamond, preparing the field, cutting the grass, drawing the foul lines, raking the infield. He would get things ready, but then, taking managerial duties, he then positioned the players on the field, and he coached them up. He was the show's studio director. Now, like most of the show's regulars, Steve is a native Northwesterner, in his case, Lakewood, Washington, or Tacoma, if you will. He grew up in a house on the banks of Lake Stillicum. At the age of six, after seeing his first live TV broadcast at the World's Fair, Steve knew what he wanted to do. Be the elevator operator for the Space Needle. No, that's not it. He wanted to get into TV in any capacity, performing, producing, directing, repairing. So he went to Pullman and attended Wazoo, deciding to forego any thought of being the Kook football team's starting left tackle, and instead majored in communications. Yeah, communications was a major. (laughs) I should know. During the summer months, Steve worked at Disneyland, wearing sweaty costumes as various Disney characters like Pluto and Winnie the Pooh. Indeed, the folks at Disneyland still say that Wilson was the best Pooh they ever had. After a six-month internship at King TV, he went to work for the company full-time, becoming a staff director and producer, talk shows, newscasts, sporting events, concerts, and more. And then, in 1985, a different kind of show to direct, almost live. Wilson leapt onto the back of that horse and he rode it for 15 years until it finally keeled over, ready for the glue factory in 1999. He moved on to other jobs, like directing Como TV's Northwest Afternoon, which was like Almost Live, but funnier. He even spent eight months in Hollywood's world of bells and buzzers, directing programs at the Game Show Network in Hollywood. Many years ago, he attended Lakes High School, home of the Lancers. Suitably, Steve has been a freelancer for some time, and today he's the go-to director for Microsoft, Starbucks, Amazon, you name it. Because if you don't, he will. But it's almost live that is remembered most fondly. And why not? Steve was, after all, one of the original high five and white guys. Well qualified, because he's white, he's a guy, and he's high. Owner of 23 Emmys, 
both earned and from eBay, I caught up with Steve Wilson from the Magnolia home he shares with his wife, Julie. So here we go. Please forgive the sketchy Zoom internet audio quality. We had fewer than two bars that day. Steve, how you doing? I'm doing good, Pat. How are you? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm upright. I'm taking nourishment. I'm feeling pretty good. Fog in a mirror every once in a while? Yeah, sure. every once in a while. Okay. Hey, let me, uh, let me, as I explained in our open here, that you, uh, among other things, you were a cast member, you were a writer, but you were called the director of Almost Live. Yes. Now, I think most people, most laymen know what a director is when they see that word in the movies, uh, but what is a director of a TV show like, almost live do what what are your responsibilities well um first of all I, li I like to think of me as like the like the um conductor of an orchestra in, in a way where someone will write the music and you know someone does the the sound the lighting all that stuff anyway and it all comes through me and i try and make it better um and um you know i a lot of the times if it was in the studio i would kind of work with a vision of okay uh, this has got to be an apartment sketch and we're going to have a door here and a window here and, we, yeah. and then, yeah. then we build that and the lighting and, and all that stuff and and if in the script something would happen I would say well we can make we can enhance that with a sound effect or we can enhance that by placing a camera over here and and, and doing that but basically I'm the one that could could see it for TV um, there's a difference you know when you see a play on stage a director has people hit their marks and so on and so forth. Yeah. And for TV, you've got cameras and they're, they're like three different angles. You do? Can, huh. I, I never I noticed those. Before. Last I checked, they did. Yeah. yeah. But their home viewer is not going to know that. They're not. Well, I, it, I always thought that the, the people in the cast, uh, they had really no idea what you did. I mean, they, you yeah. just said, go stand there and you say this and let their prompters are, still, and we I, don't know all the work you put in before we ever began that show each night. Well, uh, it, it's a I, long day. I still wasn't don't it? know. I still don't know what I do. So, um, but yes, as far as our show goes, um, you know, from kind of, uh, uh, you know, gathering graphics for the uh, late report, uh, over the shoulders that could enhance yeah. the joke tremendously yep. or not. And, uh, but yeah, blocking the show out, which we would do in uh, rehearsal in the afternoon. I would walk through it. Sometimes I'd come down and say, you got to come here and then touch this or do that. And then don't turn to the, don't, you know, when, you know we're going to do a, I used to love to call them the, <laughs> the Cashman stare down where <laughs> you would say something that was, you know, funny and then you'd cut to the other person and then cut back to you and i take a little tighter shot to the other person cut back to them and then cut back to you and cut back to them wait for the laugh it would build the laugh so i, I actually you were so good at those i call those the cashman cutbacks well thank so, you for well, that but, no, but 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 what i'm what i guess my point is that even though you didn't write the script per se you right. were a writer in a different kind of way because you you were always thinking of how do i make the script funnier than it than it is on paper and yeah that's, that's a pretty good example yeah yeah i i like to say that that a director can ruin or oh yeah the show and i always felt like i don't think i ever ruined a sketch i think that i didn't you know i didn't put my all into some of them because we did so many 
And, and let me just say, when I say sketch, I mean the studio sketches. The things yeah, the live the stuff. Yes. The things I mean, for all things. intents and purposes, the show was called Almost Live. Right. Because it was taped, but it was a live show. It was done live in real time. We, we rarely, I think I, I can only remember one or two times that we ever said, stop, stop, we got we to gotta do that over again. Right. It, yeah. it really happened in real time. So it, it, for all intents and purposes, was a live show. And there's an energy and, an, and a kind of an excitement about that. I think both for this, for the, you know, the, uh, the the cast and the crew, and also for the audience. They know that what they're seeing happening in front of them is what's going to be on TV that night. Right. So that made it kind of fun and exhilarating. Well, it's like it's like I always said, we work without a net, and. Um, and that Funicello, is that who you're referring to? No, 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 oh. no, 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 not, not Annette. No, oh, right. no, okay. yeah. yeah. I, was she a cast member? It does, it, it is true, though. It's if true. there was a, if there was a screw through up, yeah. Did, yeah. I mean, you, you must have, because I, I, I've told this story to other people before. I would get in my car, the show would be over, we'd, the, the audience would leave. I'd get in my car to drive home and be about, a, you know, 1030 at night or whatever. And I would, and I would get, I lived in Redmond and I would get about halfway over the 520 bridge and I just start screaming at, at how I had screwed a bit up or something that wasn't quite right that I, I knew I should have nailed. And uh, I wondered if you ever did that after the show saying, God, man, I wish, God, I wish he would have delivered that line better. Or I wish I'd taken that camera sooner. Or did you just say, well, it's done. That's it. I'm gone. That's the beauty about directing live TV is that 27 minutes and 35 seconds later, we're done. It's like, yeah. it's done. It's like, it's like so far in the rearview mirror. We got to go on to next week's show. And, uh, and, and uh, yeah, I, I had, I, I think every commercial break, I was beating myself up about, oh, I could have, yeah. I could have done that better. I, I would have to say that maybe 5% of the stuff that I directed, I was really pleased with. But now, and I think you're you're like this too. If you look back at the old tapes, and you you look at, I'll look at them online every once in a while. Or they, you know, they used to play them here. Every, everything's on YouTube too. Pretty much, yeah. You can watch yeah. it on YouTube. I'll play something for my wife who who has she never even watched the show. She didn't even know anything about it. So I'll play something for her. To, what a jerk she is! Ah, I know. Well, you know, yeah. I, I you know I had to find someone that would accept me as I was. So. <laughs> anyway, um, she she, she, she I, it's like I look at it, I go. God, that looks really good. That's that's really funny. You know, that's that 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 actually plays very well. I don't. I remember it as like, oh, this one makes my, a pit in my stomach, and I was like, oh, you know. Yeah, there, there's one bit yeah. that I I remember doing. We had I, I was so thrilled. We had Dave Niehaus, the legendary Mariners announcer, and uh, Rick Riz on the show. It was a masterful hilarious bit that, that Bob Nelson, are you okay? I'm hearing a little clunking noises there. No, I'm good. Okay. No, 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 no. That's me laughing. That's Bob, me. I, I Bob, clung Bob, Bob Nelson was uh, the announcer for the low key baseball network. Well, we have a clip here from that unbelievable Mariner playoff series with the Yankees last year. So why don't you go ahead and show us how you would have made that call? Okay. All right. Sure. Uh, Cora is batting and he bunts it. 
and he's uh, safe at first. Wow. Uh, I didn't uh, get excited at all on that. You would have never known that was a thrilling uh, play at first base. Thank you. I thought about that bit a million times because nobody else could have played that part. No. Uh, except yeah. him. He, he yeah. was just quintessentially brilliant. It makes me laugh every time I see it. Uh, but I always was critical of my thing in it because I thought I was way too excitable, way too uh, goofily and obviously uh, taken with the fact that Dave Niehaus and Rick Riz were sitting in front of me. It is Grand Salami time! Wow, I just, it took, you took us right back there again, Dave. But then I looked back at the bit years later now, and I said, oh, it was okay. I, I wasn't that bad. Bob Nelson's still hilarious, but I, I wasn't as bad as I remembered. So, Well, I mean, the point, counterpoint to, you know, to Bob's low-key guy, your excitedness on air makes it that much funnier because it makes him seem that much more. Thank you. I'll take that. So, okay. Well, I, I thought, you know, I, if you, if you just said, yeah, you know what? I thought about this and I thought the more excited I get, the less excited he'll look. I would have said, yeah, that's, that's the brilliance of Pat. No, I'm not, I'm not that deep. I didn't think that that much into it. <laughs> okay. Let, let's, um, let's back up a little bit. Um, when you were a kid, did you want to be, and I mean, I know you were a huge J.P. Patches fan and you loved TV as much as I did. And did you ever say, you know what, someday I'm going to be on TV. I'll be a performer. Or did you or did you say, no, nope, you know what, I don't want to be a performer per se. That'll be fine. But I want to direct other people. In other words, like you said, you want to be the conductor, not not the guy playing the saxophone. Well, I'll tell you a story about how I first fell in love with TV. I was taken to the World's Fair in 1962 by my parents. And against, King Broadcasting, against your will. That's yeah. right. But, yeah. you know, they were my parents. What were they going to do? So um, they, they took us, the King Broadcasting was broadcasting all of their shows from a corner of the Coliseum, which was the U.S. Hmm. Pavilion at the time. And that meant they, they had a kid's show called Wanda Wanda. Wanda, Wanda is my name for boys and girls. I'm glad you came. Right, And they had right. a kid's show called Stan Borson. Zero doctors, moose, shakakas, halabaloos, a bum. That's the secret password that we use down at the club. And they did their newscast there. And now, our telecast of Century 21, the Seattle World's Fair, is being brought to you live and direct from Seattle. Stay with us as our activities continue. And, and by got, the way, may I just say that Ruth Prinz was Wanda Wanda. Yep. And as as of this taping, she's still around. I believe she's around 100 years old now. I will say this. I saw Ruth Prinz less than a month ago in the Did Magnolia you? Village. Yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. that's great. Yeah. I remember she, if people don't remember the show, it was a long time ago. But she was this masterful storyteller. She'd come out in this little kind of, I don't know what you'd call it. Kind of, it oh. looked, she looked a little bit like MC Hammer. It was kind uh, of that kind of outfit. You can't touch this. Well, I smelled it. I'm glotly water. Touch this. And now the water is. Well, I. You can't 
It's I sort can't. of a Harlequin outfit. Yeah, yeah, that's better. That's a better explanation. And, and but but she would have. She told me I got to talk to her a couple of times. She told me she the first thing she'd have to do when she came into the studio to do the show was she she had all these stuffed animals all around the set, and the the crew, the TV crew, would put these animals into various sexual positions. As, and so every day without fail, she said, okay, you guys. And then she'd have to reassemble all of the animals again. And apparently they did it every day. And it I'm became, sure. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm absolutely sure that's what happened. Will he, won't he, will he, won't he stand up today? Will he, won't he, will he, won't he, what do you say? So anyway, I'm, I'm six years old and we're, we're like, we get there and the kids get to sit on the floor behind the cameras, you know. There's three cameras there and she's doing her whole show. And she went in this house that uh, they built a special house for the world's fair. And it would, it was called the turnaround house and it would like turn around. And I'm sure there's a floor director and it's going and going. And then the show ends. And so, you know, I, I don't even think about it until these guys start picking up the toys and they start tearing the turnaround house down and she snuck out or something. And I actually, she, I go, Hey, what are you doing? You're tearing down Wanda Wanda's house. What are you doing? And like, my my mom physically had to restrain me and say, "It's it's make believe. It's pretend. It's not real." And I that's when I saw the cameras and the lights, and I went, "Oh, I get it. She doesn't live in the TV in a house. She." And then what they did is they took it down, and then they dropped the backdrop for the Borson show, and he was on like Stan and, Borson. Yes, Stan Borson show, and there he is. And there it is. It looks a lot different on TV than it does in real life, you know, as the people who come to our audience will, will attest. And that's where I was like, oh, man, this is so cool. And this we went magic. home. My yeah. brothers and I went home and we took um, peach crates, wood peach crates. And we put, I stood one on an end and then put the other one on top lengthwise and wrote King TV, drew lenses and a viewfinder on like two of them. And then we would pretend to be, do the Stan Borson show. And either I had kids running the cameras or I had them, you know, standing behind them or I had them be, you know, Stan Borson. And we'd sing the song and we'd show cartoon, pretend cartoons, but that's what we did. That is, mm. that's exact. And we kept those boxes up all summer. You know, you know I, I bet a lot of kids did that. Not just you, but yeah. think of the, of the, happenstance that you actually got to do what you were witnessing. Most guys said, well, I guess I'll, that was really cool, but I think I'll go work in the jute mill over there or, <laughs> or I'll go be a Metro bus driver, but you got to do what you were enthralled with. Right. Uh, and you still must pinch yourself a little. I bit. do. I absolutely do. And it's, it's even today when I'm, I'm doing mostly, uh, uh, not on air stuff. Uh, I do stuff for Microsoft these days, but still it requires the three camera talk show format. And, um, uh, and then I can, I can whip my way through that stuff. And people who are, are strangers to TV, they're always like, Oh my God, how did you do that? They either say, how'd you do that? Or they say, yeah. I love listening to you on the headset. It's amazing how fast you work. And it's like, for me, it's all second nature and it doesn't mean a thing, but you know, but, uh, um, yeah, I, it, yes, I did get to, I did get to work with my icons, uh, the, the people that I loved. I did, I became very good friends with Stan and Chris Wiedis, JP Patches and, um, 
you know, all of them that were uh, in between those guys. I even, you know, went and hunted down some of the old guys from the Patches show. Um, uh, I mean, Patches show from, from the Borson show that were on during that time. And uh, uh, long into, you know, when, when Almost Live was on the air, we would have those guys on. We would have Patches on, you know, and, and yeah. all, I had, yeah. all I had to do was make a phone call and he was there. John Keister, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. It was just a joke, JP. Just you a understand? Joke, what you did to me, JP Patches? All right, I'm I sorry. hate to do this, John. What? You are no longer a 100% Patches pal. Oh my God! No, JP, come on. You are a Boris buddy. No, JP, please. Yes. Now we, John, oh, and think oh, about oh. it. Think about what you've done. Hey, it worked. <laughs> Stand by, everyone. We'll be back with the rest of the J.P. Patches program. Yeah, he, was, he was a wonderful man. Uh, and, and it was interesting because he was on Cairo TV and Stan Borison was on a competing kid show on King. Yeah. But those two guys got to be fast friends. They, they, there was no competition there as far as... As uh, pers personal friendship was, in I, I have a couple of pictures of them, you know, uh, out together during that heyday, during the, the heyday. And yes, they would go out to dinner, and they had their favorite restaurants. One of them, gosh, which what is the name of the place that they both loved? Um, it's a grill out in the out north of town. Can't think of it, but uh, I, I know I know what you mean. And I can't think of it either. It's yeah. lousy. It's lousy. I, that's a, I, don't, I don't know why they liked it that much. <laughs> it's good in the fifties. Maybe you know it was when it was the food was fresh. Well, yeah. I'll tell you what, they haven't changed the menu since nineteen fifty-seven. So it's like there you go. So you direct all kinds of things, as you said. You're doing Microsoft stuff, probably uh, you know uh, powwows between executives and all that kind of stuff. And uh, but you're uh, you're kind of a director of, of all trades. I mean, you can do. Game shows, you can do newscasts, uh, all kinds of things. Where does Almost Live rank, uh, or a show like Almost Live rank in your directorial assignments in terms of your own personal satisfaction? Number one, it's it. I always say that that you know from from uh, the very beginning of that show till we faded to black on the last one, uh, that this is an opportunity that just doesn't come along and it's a real yeah. testament to the people who work the show the people who allowed us to do the show even though they didn't understand how it worked or what you know why it was successful they just knew and even when it wasn't that good you know in the beginning it was you know okay um but it didn't get good until we learned our craft and that really kicked high into gear after we did those summer shows in uh 1992 for um comedy central and that's that was a that was a learning experience for me because i had kind of done the show on you know scripts that were scraps of paper and things like that and kind of did it off the top of my head how i felt and it was from a, a guy they they brought up a guy from la named mike dimmich yeah well to, i was going to ask you about that because no, we, because yeah. you weren't automatically going to get to be the director of a national show which it no. was yeah. it aired for two seasons on comedy central and right. uh, you were sort of thought, well, he's he's okay, but he he doesn't have the experience of a somebody with bigger chops. So let's don't have him be the director of this show. It's too important, and he's too green. Right. And and the thing was is that uh, did you have uh, to fight for that? 
No, <laughs> no, I did not. I was disappointed, but I was happy that the show was national and that I was going to be a part of it. And I was going to be, you know, part of the on-air part of it, which to me was like, oh, this is great. I'll do anything. It doesn't matter. I don't have to direct it. However, I did feel that I, I would be the better choice for that. And I didn't really have to do much to prove that because the show that, you know, he did took him like two days to prep. And the show that I did took like two hours for me to prep. Right. Because I'd already been doing it for the last, exactly, exactly. You know, I mean, years. the reason the reason Comedy Central wanted to buy the show was because it was good. They said, yeah. "Oh, this is a good show. We should put this on." So why wouldn't they have the guy that's already directing the show be the director of the show? But I I know how that business works. And oh, it's what I it's what I call Hollywood rules. Yeah, because basically, if you work in Hollywood, you rule. Even though, you know, you you it's they call it you can't be a hero in your own hometown they've got oh my god we've right. got to bring it into someone else so but the, the the best thing was is that he did his show first we all went to lunch after it was over i did my show in the evening and it was like well that's it no retakes we're done and after that it was uh, jim sharp said yeah he actually sent mike home that night he said yeah thanks for coming up you're you know and and i don't think mike wanted to stay i i really don't you know i think he wanted to go so he was happy and you mentioned was, you mentioned Jim Sharp. He was a uh, uh, he was uh, there uh, right out of the gate in the original production of Almost Live. Indeed, uh, as a producer, and uh, ultimately wound his way up to be the vice president at Comedy Central years later, and uh, is retired from that now. But uh, it's amazing you think of the tra trajectory of so many of these people, from Bill Nye to Joel McHale to to Keister. Everybody kind of launched off of this show. Right, uh, because they got a chance to prove that they they were actually pretty good. But if that show yeah. had been canceled early on, which rightfully it should have been, because as you said, it was getting no ratings, and it arguably wasn't didn't find its footing yet. Uh, none of the we, we wouldn't hurt any of these people probably ever again. No, I don't think so. And it is just a matter of like they say, it's it's uh, talent and timing and just complete luck uh, of, of those yeah. three things, you know, coming together. And then just the, the, the sheer will to hold it together and also in, in, in tough times and also the, the will of, of those that wanted to make that thing national and wanted, you know, wanted to sell it. I don't believe that King, there were some at King that were really behind it and others that were like, yeah, no, uh, we need to buy more news stuff or we need to, you know, we need to put more money into Seattle today for another cooking segment or something. Yeah. This was, this was something that, uh, you know, I, um, what's it, Bob, Bob Jones, you know, it was sort of, he was King TV's program director at the time. He's the one that I, I believe that said, we, we got to have something for this new hour at, at uh, seven o'clock. I think it had to do with the, um, that network TV used to start at seven and right. he said, you got to give that back. That's going to be the family hour and that's going to be local TV with, you know, you know, homegrown material. And that's where syndication really took off is like, you know, the syndicated game shows and the syndicated shows that had been on the air before. Cause a lot of stations didn't have the wherewithal to do that. And that's what almost live was, is that they wanted to do a strip show five days a week. That was comedy based, kind of like the, the David Letterman show. And, um, so it was going to start off slow once a week, and then they were going to try and extend it to, to five days a week. Well, it didn't work. They they did yeah. have Seattle 
Tonight Tonight. I'm Dick Klinger. Join me for Seattle Tonight Tonight, tomorrow night. Hey, so tell me, so how did it come about that you uh, became the director of Almost Live? I mean, you were doing directing TV news, and you weren't the first director no. That they that they thought of to do that show, right? No, they and no, huh? And I was doing, I was doing, I think at the time I might have been doing Seattle Today. Seattle Today weekdays at nine a.m. Mark Warner was assigned the show to begin with, and I think he did, like, I I couldn't tell you how many shows he did, but I did the pilot. See, I I shot the pilot, and the pilot was called Take Five, and. Um, uh, basically, all I did was transform the Seattle Today set. I brought in a whole bunch of uh, now. weren't furniture. there a weren't there a couple of pilots? Uh, there that, were there were they, like there were there were at least three pilots. Wow! And um, I only directed um, the Take Five one, um, but there was a there was one that um, oh, what's his name? I, he's still around. Um, why can't I think of his name? Oh, David Silverman. David Silverman. Thank you. Yeah, God, yeah, he's a yeah. good friend of mine, and I can't remember his name. There you go. Um, uh, he hosted one that was a sort of a beat-the-clock game show type of thing and interviews, you know, um, and that was like, what is this, <laughs> you know? And I, I didn't don't they bring Didn't they bring in a stand-up comic also from Washington, D.C.? Uh, I, I, that's what I'm remembering. That was, to- I think. To co-host with Silverman, or am I, I wrong about that? Well, I didn't have anything to do with that show. You know, I was doing my daytime thing. And then the, the last one that we did was with Ross, basically uh, supposed to be like a David Letterman, local David Letterman. And so it was formatted that way. He came out, he did the monologue, and we had a band. and Live band. And, Thank you very much. Welcome to the show, everybody. And the show was basically my house. All I brought, you've been to my house. It's like shaky's pizza on steroids so i brought in like a bunch of signage and and um the slot machine i had and all those props the 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 mickey phone prop to put on the desk and we decorated the set that way and uh he did the show and he did a sketch in the middle of it they had done a field sketch uh called chopper five remember that yeah i do that was a a takeoff of uh uh, cairo TV had their had helicopter Chopper had called Chopper, Chopper 7. 7, yeah. We had Chopper 5, and that was actually, it was a... It was, it was a motorcycle. It was. It was a motorcycle. It was a Chopper yeah. motorcycle that had yeah. a sidecar. It was pretty funny. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, that's that was the, the, the pilot. And uh, Well, I, I can say this, that a couple of the those first shows, first of all, it was an hour long when it, oh, when, yeah. it when it launched. And it was on at a horrible time of it was like Sundays at six PM. Am I right about that time? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and no nobody was watching that. They just come out of a newscast. Uh the uh formidable Ken Schram show, Town Hall Tonight. I think that's right, was that town, was the town name meeting. of it. Town, town, town meeting. meeting, thank you. And it, it was on, on Como TV. Meanwhile, almost live as a new show uh, was just getting pummeled. I don't yep. think they were getting any ratings at all because I, I don't even know if it was well introduced to begin with by no. King TV. Here, here it is. Take a look at it. If you happen to be stumbling around the dial, you can, you can check this out. And maybe occasionally they might run a promo. Hi, I'm Ross Schaefer, and I'm not going to take a lot of your time because it's so cold out here. Remember when you were kids, we would take those candy cigarettes and go... 
And everybody thought we were smoking? <laughs> you can do it right now. Let me tell you, on the show this week, we have a big guest, and I'll tell you who it is in a minute. But Joe Guppy is going to review this book in Book Look. And John Keister has some bit he's going to do called Hoophead. Hoophead. Hoophead, yeah. And we have the new Rainier Beer commercials, and here's our big guest. Governor Booth Gardner is on our show this Sunday at 6 on Almost Live. It's so cold out here. And by the way, that Hoophead uh, thing that Ross referenced was pretty good. Hey, everybody, let's play Hoophead. Doing local comedy is a neat idea, and then oh, yeah. they're not giving it a shot here. What I'll say about the uh, the uh, early shows, uh, the, what I call, um, I guess, the, the raw shows, and then later Keister did it. Uh, that's a that's a talk show format that has comedy sprinkled in. I mean, if you think about a Letterman show, you know, he did very good comedic <laughs> interviews, uh, and you know, you waited for the big guests, and we had big guests, and we had uh, stand up comedians, and. I mean, there's a lot to that show. That Tick off like, some of the comedians that were on that show. Oh, my God. Uh, the Ellen DeGeneres. I've been keeping in shape lately, you know. You have to. I'm getting older. I'm 27. People say, you don't look 27. You look like you're about 23. I'm lucky because that runs in my family. My grandmother is 97. She looks about 93. <laughs> have a little nephew who's four. Doesn't even look like he's born yet. Jerry Seinfeld and cover to cover. I have no idea what's happening in the world, but I'm reading the paper. What's amazing mostly to me about the paper is that whatever goes on in the world exactly fits the number of pages that they have in the paper. Dana Carvey was on. Dana Carvey was on. Yeah. Isn't that special? Paula Poundstone, I remember. Okay, I was born in Alabama, but I only lived there for a month before I had already done everything there was to do. Even as an infant, I was bored and crawled to the state line. <laughs> My parents said they had some packing to do. I said, fine, I'll meet you. I gotta get out of here. A lot of the SNL uh, stand-up comedians who were on SNL yeah, came yeah, through and yeah. did that. Um, yeah. You know, just, just tons of them. You know, tons and tons. And they, they, were, they were in town working at uh, Comedy Underground or whatever. And, and uh, when, when did that first show tape? What day of the week was that? Thursdays. Thursdays. We would, yeah, we'd tape Thursday nights. And the show didn't air till Sunday. So you couldn't do anything topical. And the reason we did it Thursdays is because the comedians would come in. Right, right, right. And they'd usually do a Thursday night show that was empty. So they'd do one show Thursday night. And then Fridays, they'd do two shows. And Saturdays, they'd do two shows. And Sunday, they'd go home. So um, they'd come in Thursday. And a lot of them were, like, anxious to get on. Um, you know, Jerry was... Uh, pretty well established but not really huge yet but the deal was is that if you were going to get on the johnny carson show you had to either play the laugh stop uh in la and have one of the producers come and look at you right or at this point in time you could get a tape and the only way to get a tape was to do a a local show well we were doing a local comedy show that had featured you know at least seven minutes of the stand-up you know for act you know for act four and then they'd panel you know and they do hard setups so basically big comedian comes through or a semi-big comedian and we would after the show was over i'd hand them the tape i say here's your tape here's 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 both the segments there you go and they would go right to the carson show and uh, uh, more than you know more than a few got on the carson show based on that mm, tape. i didn't so know had, that yeah, we had no problem 
you know, getting getting uh, the stand-ups to do the Thursday night show. That's Black. why we had such great names. And and uh, we we would take them from there was the Comedy Underground, and then there was Giggles. And so those were the two. Clubs yeah, yeah. Book the big names. I remember um, when the show got underway, and I always equate this to like a college newspaper. I, I was the editor of my college newspaper. It's how I was able to pay my way through college. But invariably, at any college almost, especially back in the day, there would always be an underground newspaper that would rise up. They, yeah. they would they would say that, yeah, the, the newspaper, the college newspaper, you're just, you're a, a toady for the man. And right. we, we want to talk about some real issues, damn it. And so right. we're going to start our own newspaper. Yeah. And that would usually last about one issue or maybe two. And then they'd run out of gas, run out of ambition, run out of writers, run out of issue, uh, 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 you know, momentum. Right. I, almost lives in, in my estimation seemed like that to me. It was like they came roaring out of the gate and then, my God, this is hard. We got to do this <laughs> an hour of material every week. Yeah. We don't have we don't have the staff for that, and right. and that's why they would come to, you know, people around the station like me. Mm-hmm. I, I I was working at King, but I had nothing to do with Almost Live in those days. And they said, God, man, if you could, if you could do any bit, or you got any ideas? Uh, we and they were really were just you know fishing around everywhere to try and put something on the air every week. And again, it made that show look like it was very uh, likely to not survive. But it gave uh, people like me and other people the opportunity to to say, well, okay, I, I don't know anything about writing scripts for comedy, but sure, I'll give it a shot. And man, well, I'm, I got to tell you, some of that stuff is so bad now, but no, that's, but I, that's how I, you learn. Let yeah. me just say, I was in on the committee that hired you for King and they, they, you, it, on your resume tape was the Farndark stuff, Professor Farndark for, you know, the, the Midnight Theater. What was the Peculiar Playhouse? Now, this was in Boise, Idaho, and yes. it was on a station called KTVB, and yeah. I hosted a late night. There were a million of them in every market. This sure. was a late night monster movie show. Yeah, but you, one... weren't, you weren't in Dracula. You were this goofy professor, this nutty professor, and those bits Oh my God! They were they were fleshed out, and you you get paid a tribute to several you know uh, silent comedians. You did stuff that was like way off the mark, you know. And I was like, this is amazing stuff for a lo- a local midnight movie thing. So let me let me tell you about that. And I, this is not self aggrandizing, but uh, Boise in that at that time, and this is a long time ago. They there were only the local stations. There were there was no cable. If you can yeah. believe it, in a in a market, a relatively good sized market like Boise, it was only the local stations, and most of those signed off around midnight. Yeah. Our show ran on an NBC affiliate, and because it was in the Mountain Time Zone, Saturday Night Live aired from ten thirty p.m. to midnight. Yeah. Right, and then the station would normally sign off then, but uh, I can't remember how it came together. It was, I said, hey, could could we do a I went to the station manager. Could we do a, a late night horror movie show and I'll be the host and we'll do stuff and, and you could sell, you know, advertising in there and you, we could stay on the air till maybe one thirty instead of signing off at midnight. They went for it. And um, so we were on for about six months and then the station manager decided, ah, oh, this is, this is stupid. It's a waste of time. <laughs> and so they canceled us and I was, I was really hurt. And then 
this is this just doesn't happen in real life. Then about a month later, they 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 come back to us and they say, "Good Lord, have you guys seen the ratings that you guys got for this stupid show of yours?" And we and I remember they said we got a ninety share. And for, <laughs> and for people who don't know what that means, that means that nine out of ten people with TVs were watching that show. Yeah. And of course, I can't be happy about that because I'm brooding. I'm brooding over. Wait a minute. What were the other ten percent of the people watching? Snow. They were preferring snow or test patterns. Yeah, they were sleeping. But no, nobody really watched the show. Oh, but if yeah, you were, yeah. if you were staggering in on a Saturday night and you were drunk and you you're looking for a little TV, there it was, Peculiar Playhouse, and wow. we we went out and paid fifty dollars per movie, and they were the worst movies. Uh, you could imagine. So we had fun with that and, and openly said, this is a piece of crap. Here it is tonight. The beast of Yucca Flats and, <laughs> or whatever it was. The best part is coming up. That's when those little part where it says the end. Have you ever noticed that on a movie? Well, that's coming up. And I think you'll enjoy that part a lot. Uh, but uh, so when, when uh, Almost Live came along, I was, uh, I had been hired at King to be a commercial producer. So I wasn't involved with that show. And in a way, it was kind of an advantage. I could look at it uh, from kind of on the on the sidelines. And then I'd say, eh, I, I got an idea for a bit, but I wasn't emotionally or certainly not financially involved with the show. So it didn't hit, it didn't hit. And uh, there was no, no sweat off my nose. But I, then I got to kind of fall in love with it. And especially about the time you started directing the show, I started seeing a change in momentum with where it was go going and what its potential could be. Well, I, I, I don't think, you know, to me, the, the show to me was like the best show to be able to direct. I, I consider it two different shows. There's the, the show where it was the talk show. I mean, you know, the big, big names would come into a music segment along with the comedians, that sort of stuff. And then when, you know, when it was like, okay, it's still on Sunday and Ross had gone to Hollywood to uh, host the uh, the late show down there. Um, and it was, we had open call on hosts and then they made Keister the host and it was still the talk show. And it, it just wasn't there. You know, it, it, it was like, it was, we, we were fumbling and fumbling. And so I, I do remember that summer that we put together a few shows to run after the, um, uh, basketball finals uh and uh, they were half hour fillers that had the best tape bits and then at the end of that summer they decided okay we can flip the format to more of a saturday night live and uh just have sketch comedy we don't we got rid of the band we got rid of uh the you know keister became the host and it was basically doing all sketch comedy so that to me that's like like i said both shows were great but the the one that was really that really started knocking the ball out of the park, and that's where we brought on people, you know, that that just basically did that sort of work. Yeah, um, it was that's that's when it really took off. Yeah, well, it's also worth mentioning that it got into a more enviable time. Uh, yes, slot, <laughs> which is right before Saturday Night Live. I forgot that's when Saturday Night Live started to really suck, Lauren. Yeah, Michaels had left the show and handed it over, handed the reins over. And they hired a bunch of a um, lot of lot of Hollywood movie stars that were young, but nobody who had really good comedy chops. And the 
show was tanking week after week after week. And I know because it, you you would think that everybody would resent the fact that they had to wait around a half an hour for this stupid local comedy show to yeah. get over with before they could watch Saturday Night Live. So it was a happy benefit that SNL was actually not very good. And no, and, yeah, and yeah. But I this is the way I remember. It took three years to go and it's like the first year i was like you know people are going what is this before saturday night live those that hadn't had a chance to watch snl because we were on it at 11 30 and the second year was you know this show's not bad and by the third year that we were on at that time slot we were we were just knocking the ball out of the park every night and then we went national so yeah. but it did it did take three years of pushing snl back to midnight and then there was this, like, now SNL has been retooled, Lauren's back, and he wants his time slot back. And, you know, God love him. Craig Smith said, no, we're, we're Craig, keeping it. Craig Smith, a program director at the time. Right, yeah. Uh, uh, hey, uh, let us let me t ask you to tell some stories, uh, kind of the behind-the-scenes sort of stuff. The stuff that, that went awry or that, uh, I mean, I think a lot of people remember the notorious space needle collapse bit yes. on April Fool's. Did you have a hand in that? I did. And um, the, the hand that I, I had in it, I watched the, the, uh, the bit, the pre-tape bit that ran at the beginning of the show where we knocked over the space needle. And, um, and, and for people who may not know, and I assume because you're listening to this, that you, you probably have watched the show and know a little of its history. But the idea was that it was an April Fool's show. And it was one of those maybe one of the handful of shows that was actually not on tape, but it was live. Right. And uh, and so the idea was that we'd start the show as normal, and then there'd be this breaking news interruption. We interrupt our regularly scheduled programming for the following special report. Good evening. Approximately seven minutes ago, at 6.53 p.m., the Space Needle collapsed. You take it from there. Well, yeah, and, and the other thing is, is that you have to remember, our show was still Sunday nights at 6, okay? Right, right. And it was the, it was the, um, the talk show format. And so uh, they were, we were trying to figure out how we're going to save this show, and this was during that time, you know. And was Keister, we, Keister was he, the host? He was the host. He yeah. had been deemed the host the year before. And, and uh, so we were trying to figure out how are we going to save this? And so one of the things was, well, you know what? Let's move it to Saturday at seven o'clock and we'll take the, and that's when Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous was on. So we basically swapped time slots without telling anybody. And so ah. Saturday night comes around and everybody's finished their dinner and all the, you know, everybody's watching Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And this show comes on and it starts with this open, you know, that, it's like maybe 15 seconds or 10 seconds into it. And it's like, boom, we interrupt this program, bring you a special announcement. The Space Needle has fallen over. Information at this point is incomplete. We do know that injuries are minimal. Fortunately, the needle was nearly empty when the accident occurred. A maintenance man who was working on the lower level has apparently been taken to Harborview's emergency room for minor injuries. And so, so anyway, after that, it was like, um, we just come back and, and, and it's like, uh, here's another breaking news. It's almost live. And we did that show live and right. Keister comes out to the applause and he says, bummer about the needle. <laughs> and he goes into his monologue, which is easy. And then pretty soon I'm up in the booth. It's Saturday night and the phone rings 
And it's like, huh, who would be calling me in the booth? So I pick it up and it's actually the switchboard. Back in the day, we had nobody there, anybody on Saturday nights at the switchboard. You would go to an answering service and it's the answering service, excuse me. And they, they said, what have you done? And I said, I don't know. We've got hundreds and hundreds of phone calls here about the space needle falling over and go, oh my God, they must be. And so I'm in I'm the just, booth. I'm just amazed, you know, in hindsight oh that yeah. nobody saw that coming. You know? Well, I, and, the, and the thing that only saved me that made me feel this, I saw that tape bit and, you know, Staten called and I said, we got to put something on here that says that it's April Fool's. And there's a little Chiron up in the corner that says uh, Saturday, April 1st, you know, whatever year it was, 80 something, April Fool's Day. You know, it says that on there, April yeah. Fool's Day. And I said, we got to put that on there. And that is the one thing that really saved our butts. Because I, well, 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 you sounded like you just exploded there. You okay? Yeah, let me just start over. I take the phone call and in the booth, I, and it's a two-minute break, and it's the answering service. And they say, what have you done? And I'm thinking, oh, great. So I talked to, to Bill, the, the producer downstairs, and I said, look, we, we got to come back and show them that the space needle is still standing. And Luckily for us, since it was a live show, we had set up a live camera to do a bit. You know, we had taped a $20 bill to a phone pole on the street. And the first person to drive down here and get the $20 bill got it, you know. So I said, swing around and shoot the needle. And so they did. And Keister came out after the first break and said, hey, it was a joke. The space was, it's still standing. You know, he, he pointed it out live, you know, that sort of thing. So that's that's the only thing I, but it was boy we knew we had done something the next day yeah right? yeah even no that kidding. night we, we kind of got a little bit yelled at so i always felt it was kind of a war of the worlds kind of thing uh which is a really old reference for people but uh, or, uh orson wells uh put on this war of the worlds thing but he made it into kind of a newscast and and people who were listening panicked thinking that we were being invaded by Mars. They make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught up by the woods, the barns, the, the gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill on the surface of the planet. We continue now with our piano interlude. In point of fact, uh, I have read, there, were all, there was almost nobody listening to that War of the Worlds broadcast. They were listening to something much more popular on another network. And I think Almost Live 2 didn't create the kind of panic it could have because it still didn't have that many viewers but the rumors started. It would be like Dolores saw it, and she calls Gladys and says, yeah, you got to turn on the TV right now. The space needle just... And then it started growing exponentially from there. But I think in point of fact, very few people actually saw the bit. Well... I'm guessing. I, I do know that the 911 line was, was swamped. And that's, that's, that's enough to, you know you know, get in the way of real 911 calls where you got a bunch of chuckleheads who are like, you know, thinking that that's it. But there's also the story about the, the guy in, in Spokane who drove, his daughter worked at the Space Needle. So he drove all the way over and he was very angry about driving all the yeah. way over. Yeah. And it's like, 
really, you couldn't have called her or you couldn't have called the space needle and say, are you still standing? No, he had to drive all the way over. No, we're not standing anymore. <laughs> That's right. No, we're, thank, we're thank you for calling. Yeah, really. We're, we're, we've collapsed. We're done. Our, our phones are still working, but we've collapsed. Yeah. Yeah. So. It, uh, I, I, but I think I've heard the argument made and I think there's some validity to it that, uh, a, a show that was struggling for ratings that all of a sudden became a national news story. Exactly. And, and, uh, that didn't hurt. I mean, it, no. it, yes, it was unfortunate that people got scared and, and upset and, and, and terrified in some cases, but, uh, it sure put the show on the map. And after that, it was up to that show to deliver the goods. Uh, right. But yeah. We got the spotlight for that one shining moment by accident. And now it's like, okay, we have their attention. We've got to, we got to make sure this is going to go. So. What else do you remember from the show that most people wouldn't know about from your experience that happened, you know, up, up in your directorial booth or things that you observed along the way? I remember a pretty popular stand-up comedian back in the green room, as we used to call it, getting ready to come on our show, just pounding sugar cubes like crazy. And then, you know, I'm so naive. I didn't know what that was all about. And somebody says, Oh yeah, if you're, if you're into cocaine, man, that's a good substitute until you can get the real thing. Uh, I remember seeing that going on. Well, I, I remember Joe Walsh's writer called for a, uh, uh, a court of, uh, Joe, Joe Walsh of the Eagles. Yes, the Eagles. Um, he came and, you know, he performed Rocky Mountain Way and he forgot the lyrics because in his writer was a ice cold uh, 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 fifth of uh, vodka, which was completely gone before he went on stage. Oh, no. So, yeah. Oh, my so. God. And so it's like, it wasn't hard because it was like, you know, I, I said, hey, I'm a big fan. How you doing? How you doing? Yeah, it's like, oh, my God. Well, I remember that, that I remember that in the early days when the audience, the live audience would show up, they'd be out in the, in the waiting area and uh, they, they'd all be served wine or some other liquor. Wine or beer and get, pizza. Yeah, we had a... Get, getting them good and liquored up before they yeah. came in to watch the show. And then that, that, uh, that plan ended rather suddenly, didn't it? It did because it wasn't because of the, the alcohol problem. I mean, alcohol was, was okay at King, but it was, it put them to sleep. And a lot of times on that early show, you know, I, I went and observed Saturday night live and the tonight show and the Letterman show and I realized that, oh, the show starts when the people sit down in their chairs. Yeah. It's not when, when the director turns the cameras on and the lights on. No, the minute they come into the studios, you got you to gotta get them. And you don't let them in until you're ready to let them in. That, that's, that's the thing. You don't, you don't want to make them sit outside very long. So that was the thing is that we, we'd have them arrive. We didn't know. So we'd have them arrive at like six and sometimes we wouldn't march them until eight. So they're sitting out there for two solid hours. They're drinking, they're eating pizza and now they're pissed off. Cause you know, <laughs> make a bunch of pissed off people laugh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. well I, I had always heard that the alcohol experiment ended when a guy blew chunks uh, <laughs> out in the audience. Is that true? I don't doubt that that happened. I don't doubt, but I think it was really more of the, they came to the realization that, Gosh, you know, you know, you don't want to have them all liquored up because they're they're surly. It's it's like 
you have a whole audience full of hecklers and it's like that's not good to be putting on tape you know so but yeah i'm i i wouldn't know i you know i don't remember that that doesn't i don't remember anyone hurling you know other than me in the booth but maybe i maybe i just made that up Uh, i i would i would i've always said that the people that worked on our show uh keister and conway and guppies and uh, bob nelson and all those wonderful folks uh bill stanton they they were i can't think of an exception everybody was a sweetheart they were very nice maybe it's a seattle thing but everybody's really nice, and if somebody's at a table reading a bit, nobody says, oh, that sucks. That's terrible. That'll never fly. Everybody's going, well, that, that's got some promise. That's good. That, that, that might work. You know, that's how, that is the general, <laughs> the general demeanor of that crowd. And, um, but you, and I, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but, I mean, you could be the exception to that when you had to be. You could be a real hard ass, especially on uh, on taping day, yeah. because you had to be like a, a drill instructor and say, "No, we, come on, stop screwing around, everybody. We got to get this done. We're running out right. of time. We got to rehearse this now. Stand over there. Stop mumbling. Uh, your microphone's too low. Uh, you're slouching. I mean, you you had to kind of uh, rub some people the wrong the wrong way, but I don't think anybody ever resented you for it. But we needed at least one person to be the bad cop there or it just wasn't going to work. Right. No, I, I agree with that. And that it's also a matter of like, we had probably an hour and a half to just loosely block uh, the show. And you know, it's, it's not that hard, but it's like, there were some, there were some bits that took a lot of rehearsal and, a, you know, to make sure we weren't sure if it was going to work. If it was a science guy bit, we had to make sure it was actually going to work. And yeah. that might take two or three tries. And if it was a, you know, and if it was like a, a bit where it was paramount that I cut at a certain point, I had to write all that stuff down. But I first had to walk through everybody in the studio. And the, the thing is, is that if, if they're not, this is natural. This is the way it works is they, if, if a performer is not uh, in the middle of reading the stuff, the, the, they're, they're kind of keeping loose and goofing off. And, and it's like, attention hey you guys we we have to get through this we we only have so much time so it's kind of like what i called my time that hour and a half was for them to make sure that they knew what they were supposed to do but i you know sometimes we had a lot of studio heavy stuff and i had yeah three, three things to get through and and uh you know it was it was timing was everything in the in the directing department i mean if yeah. i cut a half a second too early or a half a second too late it's going to blow the whole bit, you know, cutting it right on the money makes the bit good. And then there's like what we call, remember we used to say, I'd always say the bits a minute 30 with laugh a minute 10, you know, so we'd always have that joke, but it basically you could extend a bit out by 20 or 30 seconds. If you got a rolling laugh and with that, you have to be able to fill that time and make it even funnier. So that's, that's the thing about me is that, yes, I was, very i was like a, a drill sergeant i was very strict about that time and um uh, i i do understand it i didn't like it i i you know i hated myself after that but i thought yeah. god this is the only way i know to get this thing going and get it on the air well i remember uh, and i used to brood about this I, like i told you I, screaming on the uh, driving home 
uh, I did, I wrote this bit called, uh, it was about this guy who was a TV weatherman and he was, uh, and he had just, and they just started his weathercast and he had just been informed seconds earlier that he was being fired. He, this was going to be his last weather forecast. <laughs> and, uh, and so the whole bit is the guy's anger is mounting and mounting and mounting. And now it's time for the weather with Brian Dixon. Hi, everybody. Meteorologist Brian Dixon here with tonight's weather forecast, which I was just informed exactly 30 seconds ago is going to be meteorologist Brian Dixon's final weather forecast <laughs> on this television station. So let's get right to it. We've got some high pressure building here off the coast, a lot of heavy pressure to get Brian Dixon out of here, even though he worked his butt off for this station for seven years. <laughs> this system's going to bring with it some heavy winds, which will hopefully cause a great big tree to fall over and crush two or three of the station's stupid-looking news vans. Temperatures around the country, 67 degrees in the 12th largest market of the country, Minneapolis-St. Paul, where Brian Dixon turned down a very nice offer a couple of years ago because he was made a lot of promises, you know, to stay here instead. Now, take a look at that 72-degree temperature over there in New York City where Brian Dixon had a close friend with ABC who said that the Good Morning America weathercaster job was Brian Dixon's for the asking. But Brian Dixon didn't take that job because Brian Dixon had the silly idea that loyalty counted for something. So, But I remember I had practiced that thing down to a T. I, had, I, I, I really wanted a certain kind of timing to it. And so, and it's a live bit and it's at the end of our show and, and I'm getting ready. I'm in my place. I'm getting ready to go. And then I get word from you that, Hey, we're running really short on time. Pat, you're going to have to race through this bit. Just, just go as fast as you can. Well, it looks like Brian Dixon's getting the hurry-up sign over there, and that's probably so we can zip over and show you some lame live report from a street festival, which if anybody watching this moronic newscast cared a rat's ass about, they'd be at. So that's it for meteorologist Brian Dixon, who actually is a meteorologist, but that obviously doesn't really matter around here, because unfortunately, what Brian Dixon is not is a blonde bimbo with gigantic hooters who's banging the headboard with the news director every night. So there's your stinking weather! And so I do... And it just doesn't, it didn't work for me as well. And I, and I just like, damn it, damn it. And then after I race through the bit and we're, and we're waving goodbye to the audience at the end of the show, these really long credits go on. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. We were out of time. Why did he, why did he tell me that? And I just sit and pouted about that forever. Oh God. Oh, I'm so hey, sorry. Pat. Hey, do you remember, um, <laughs> you, we did a, I did a bit and there's, everybody's in the cast has uh, those, those sketches that they are most commented upon. And yeah. mine, mine was this bit called Roscoe's Oriental Rug Emporium. And it was, uh, basically yeah. that they're going out of business. Yep. And, uh, well, you know, this is a little bit of it. At Roscoe's Oriental Rug Emporium, we're saying goodbye. We're closing our store forever, and you can save like never before. Roscoe's Oriental Rug Emporium is saying, that's it, it's over, we're done, time's up, farewell, so long, toodaloo, we're out of here. We really mean it, no kidding, this is really it this time. I know we've said it before, but this is the real deal this time. We're and so, I remember you directed it, it wasn't live, but we did it live on tape. Right, and, which is uh, essentially live. I yeah, mean, it is. You know. It is. And I, uh, all I can remember about it is that you walked me through it several times. Yes. And you knew why, I, you, you, because you knew I'm only going to get one take out of this guy. For me, this is absolutely positively it this time. We're not pulling your leg on And And that is, in fact, what happened. I was so hoarse at the end of the bit. 
that I, 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 and I was just dripping with sweat, and I remember falling down onto the studio floor when we were done. I, I'm not a professional actor, so I don't know how to breathe properly and all of that, so I, I practically made myself pass out. I was working so hard at it. And, uh, but we got that one, <laughs> that, that one take, and, and then I thought, oh, jeez, now he's going to make me do Make me do another. And you said, no, nope, we got it. We're good. <laughs> oh, thank well, God. Thank you, Steve. Well, what I what I remember about that as I was saying, you know, you're gonna go from one to twelve. You know, you're gonna go way past ten and twelve. And I know you. So it's like, you can raise your voice at this point here. You know, on this line here and on this line here and on this line here. But then that's it. Roscoe Tony and Luigi Emporium going out of business since 1957. So you went from one to twelve, and you still had a minute left in the thing, or like that. And I thought. Man, he's at full volume now, and, and he can't breathe, and he's still got, a, like, at least 40 seconds worth of copy here, and he's got to hit the bitter end, you know? The, you know. Yeah. I, oh, mis oh. I, mis <laughs> I misjudged it, yeah. Hey, you know, yeah, like, uh, oh. we, we, better, uh, uh, we better give people some mercy and wrap this up, but what? Uh, hey, you, you, got to got do, you, you got to do very occasional talent things on camera because of your directing responsibilities you never got to do a live bit because no. you were you were up in the director's booth right. but one of my favorite things that you ever did and and there are a lot of them but uh, there was a um, there was a commercial uh, commercial series actually on the air for encyclopedia britannica that was that was a real advertising campaign i don't think people even have encyclopedias anymore except online you know Hardly any of this stuff can really help me with my schoolwork. There is something you could have which would help you a lot. Do you know what that is? No, but I'm afraid you're going to tell me. Uh, yes. It's the new Encyclopedia Britannica. Encyclopedia Britannica. Now you tell me. I've got a report due tomorrow. On what? On the exploration of space. Take a look at this. From the first beeps of Sputnik to the triumph of the Apollo moon landing. All right. Well, since this has turned out to be a Britannica commercial, I guess you're going to tell me how somebody could get a set. Actually, I thought I might, yeah. And I suppose you're going to throw one of those 800 numbers up on the screen. Am I right? Might as well. But So we did a takeoff of that commercial, and you're this, <laughs> this snot-nosed kid oh, yeah. on camera. Yeah. And I just love the bit because I'm, I'm off camera, and, and I'm, I'm talking to you, and you, you don't see me. You just see you. Yeah. And then, uh, this is the book. Oh, pardon me there. Excuse me. Oh, uh, kid, what are you doing? I'm just finishing my report on Watergate. Want to hear it? Sure, why not? So, in conclusion, Watergate was a conspiracy masterminded by Nixon, the FBI, the CIA, the Pentagon, and several members of the Osmond family. Well, that's quite a theory. What are your sources? I got it all right here from Oliver Stone's World Book Encyclopedia. It's a multi-volume documentary of Mr. Stone's version of the world we live in. That must make for some lively history reports. Oh, it's not just history. I did a science report about how the universe began. You mean the Big Bang? Well, Oliver thinks it was actually a series of explosions caused by aliens from a parallel universe. Right. Oliver says our government knows about it, but it's covering it up. Well, that makes sense to me. And I did a report on rainbows. Oh, of course. Oliver thinks they're an elaborate scientific hoax devised by politicians to distract us from government corruption. Well, that's getting a little far out there now. Hey, shouldn't you be putting that 1-800 number up now? I'm getting to it. Well, Oliver Stone thinks you're a little slow in getting to it. 
Oliver thinks you're part of a conspiracy to keep the people from seeing the 1-800 number. Here's your 800 number. Can you see it? Where? Here. Where? Right here. What? There. <laughs> I have been wanting to do that for a long time. Anyway, call the number on your screen to order Oliver Stone's World Book Encyclopedia. And I love that I just hit you in the chops right at yeah, the end. Yeah, you did. And, but it was actually, you, you pulled it and it was fine. But we have that lovely sound effect. And I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I have to say, I called, the part of my deal was being a director. I had, do you remember my old office? I had like 200 carts in there, which later all went into the instant replay, which I still, you know, I, I still uh, have all these sound effects, but they were certain sound effects that that's like, where are you going to get a slap like that? You know, and yeah, it's, it, that was and a good it's one. Like, it was. And it's like, I couldn't find anything. So I would, I would hold on to these things. And then when we do these live bits, I go through the carts and I go, I need a slap and I need a, I need a car crash and I need this. I need, I need a need knee that. to the groin. Yeah. I need a knee to the groin. I need a fist fight. I need this, you know, I need whatever. And they were all sound effects that I, that I carefully call, called and, and kept. I didn't just like go to the regular, records the sound effects or the music records if we needed the uh if we needed it to be like a, a you know a talk show that it was kind of 60s i went out and pulled those those uh those cinemax the uh, things and i had all that stuff you do, you, like, do you still have it absolutely it's yeah. in my attic i have every single i have every single script book every single rundown do you every, really wow yes they're upstairs I, they're all there i have I because I was in radio, I had easily a thousand CDs of music CDs. Yes. And I, about yeah. about two weeks ago, and I I just took them all to the dump. Oh no! It, it was painful, but I yeah. just said I can't keep these anymore. I anything I need is on YouTube, or I can yeah, find I, it online. Yeah. 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 But man, it just pained me to throw them. Away. I mean, I just, there will be people that will buy CDs. You see those signs in the windows, but yeah. they're only going to pay you like three cents or something i didn't figure it was worth it to to haul of all of those and then for some guy you know to say ah we don't like that one Nah, that one's not good. <laughs> ah, we might take that one no 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 yeah this one's okay yeah. I, said, I don't need that i'm just gonna can't, throw them away can't take it personally you know yeah. that's just the way yeah. it is but i can't i do take it personally i have like i said i have all the scripts and i have all the shows on vhs never transferred them over to to um, the DVD, although I had probably many opportunities, and I have a machine that'll do that. I don't even think those those VHSs will play anymore. They've been up the attic for yeah, you're right, twenty yeah. some odd years. Well, Steve, it's been a fun gabbing with you, man. Uh, um, this is uh, I don't know how interesting this is to anybody else, but I, well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. I'll, I'll listen to it. I, I'm not sure if King is still running. Almost like. Unfortunately, they're not. They stopped running it in September. I never have talked to anybody but uh, about it, but I just noticed that I had it on my uh, uh, my uh, DVR thing, the, the re recording, uh, and uh, it would pop up, and I would, you know, I, they'd, they'd run it after Saturday Night Live. And then so it ran. So it ran through uh, the year 2019. It did, and in then continuous the, reruns. Yes, so and, yeah, so the yeah. show began in 1984. So you do the math. Yeah. That, that might be the longest running show in Northwest history. With you think about it that way, yeah, I think I think yeah, I think it's uh, it's it had a good run anyway. At fifteen years on the thing, and then yeah. like in repeats, it was like 
20 some on here. So like, that's crazy. I hope people don't pay too close attention to the show. They'll realize that, uh, that I wrote the same bit basically over and over and over. (laughs) That's what I tell them. It's like, I tell my friends when I go out with Julie, they say, well, you guys are a really good couple. I said, well, it's because she understands me. It's like the, that she knows I, I only have like 14 jokes. And so now they're at the point where I just go seven and we go, ha, 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 Oh, you, I love that one. You got me beat by six. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Take care of yourself. Thanks for joining us on this crazy uh, podcast. And uh, I hope it uh, doesn't wind up embarrassing you too much. And I hope no. you can continue to get work. No, thank you very much. I, I, I had a great time. I, it's, it's so much fun to talk to you. And sometime, I'm sure, I will, I will see you soon. Thanks for doing this, Steve. Bye, buddy. Bye, Bye, buddy. Bye, buddy. Bye, buddy. Bye, buddy. Bye, buddy. Bye, buddy. The Almost Live, Still Alive podcast. Produced and edited by Morris Patrick Cashman. Technical director is Dave Tavers. Special gratitude to the legendary Kenneth George Buford McCaw, Almost Live's chief archivist. And thanks also to King TV Seattle. This program was made possible in part by the 12th century nun and mystic Hildegard von Bingen, inventor of spoken language. And by Emil Berliner, creator of the microphone. And I'm your announcer, that kid from Sluggy, Chris Cashman. Chris Cashman.